Welcome to our podcast. This is another recorded episode of Stay Classy San Diego at KCBQ with video production provided by Max Lux Media with your host, myself, Steve Wire. This podcast is dedicated to keeping you informed and engaged with the latest news and trending events in the San Diego region. Join us on a weekly exploration as we sit down with prominent political figures, insightful analysts, industry professionals. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Stay Classy San Diego. This is episode number 50. Uh, I can't believe it's, it's already been a year. Um, how it flies. But today we're really excited to have on Roman Koenig. Roman, um, thanks so much for coming to the studio today. Really appreciate your time. Um, for those of you who don't know him, Roman is an accomplished filmmaker, journalist, author, and educator alongside his independent film projects under the banner of Mercury Cinema. Uh, Roman actually serves as the publisher of the online news journal North Coast Current, which we're going to talk about a little bit towards the end. Um, but um, he is also holding a Master's of Arts degree in television, film, and new media production from San Diego State University. Um, has all, all the credentials, um, and he's won some film awards. Is that right? Um, so far. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, just a couple of mentions. <clears throat> the Frequenters, 2017, um, award of recognition from the Accolade Global Film Competition. And then uh, Thirst in 2015 was the award of merit from the Best Shorts Competition, uh, along with some others as well. Uh, and you've gotten a whole bunch of professional journalist awards. You've gotten over 50 awards from the Society of Professional Journalists, San Diego Press Club, and the Los Angeles Press Club. So, again, all the credentials are there. But here today, we want to talk about your your film um, that you yes. just produced, uh, or that you directed, excuse me. Um, and man, produced. Yeah, directed and produced. Yeah, yeah, the man behind the whole show. Um, Red-Blooded is the name of the film. It's not publicly available yet, um, but will be early next year. Is that correct? In yes, that's right. Um, and just... I'm not going to spoil the film, but I'm going to just give a brief synopsis. The, the film is about a school board president who has um, very little tolerance for immigrants, students of color, and others, but gets the tables turned on her when she learns that her own son is a member of the kinds of groups that she and her husband target, leading to her own lesson and acceptance. And uh, I just watched the film the other day, really enjoyed it. It's it's about 30 minutes long, about yeah. give or take. So it's a short film, um, but I really enjoyed it. I it was... I was really struck by some of the themes in it, and without, again, spoiling some of the specifics, I wanted just to ask you, first of all, like, sort of explain to people, beyond what I just said, like, what this film is about, um, just sort of what the setting for this film is, and this is sort of a, a brief synopsis. So, basically, the, the setting of the film, it takes place in a fictional town called Geyser Oaks here in California. And um, so this school board president gets elected to um, with an agenda with a whole slate of other candidates and she goes in trying to um, target who she believes don't belong there people who should students families whatever who don't belong in in our in our country basically yeah and um, I, I wrote the story originally back in 2015 um, oh, wow. going into 2016 because the the rhetoric at that time in that presidential election was already, um, worrying me. And so yeah. I thought there's there's got to be a story here that I could I express my concerns and have a good dramatic story at the same time. The original version of the of the script is not a lot like the one that ended up getting made because then the pandemic came around. We had 2017, 2018, it sat on the shelf. And then uh, over the pandemic, I pulled it out and updated it because I had what, three more years post-2016 to reflect. And mm. so the version that we see now is what I updated over the pandemic, and we went into pre-production in 2021. Sure. So you already touched on it, but talk a little bit more about what specifically inspired this film, like sort of how it came about, how you wrote it, um, and like for the, for the characters um, and like the plot, like how that, how that came to be. So e even by 
even by 2015, 2016, I was seeing in local elections a certain vitriol that was per percolating up. Yeah. It wasn't just a national thing. It was already a, it was already a local thing. And um, I was noticing it in particular in school boards where the meetings were getting increasingly um, vitriolic. Lots of, um, you know, lots of hate, I, w I would sense. A lot of public comments where the board would just be sitting there and, you know, couldn't really do much other than have all this stuff thrown at them. But then we had board members who were also um, part of these, part of this element uh, of um, uncivil behavior. Mm. And I just felt it was a really important topic to try to address in some dramatic kind of way. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So... I, it, it just sort of sprung from there. But the character of the school board president um, is inspired by, I will say, a few um, elected officials. But it's she's an amalgam. Local elected officials? Lo yeah, local. Like but here also, in San Diego County? Even, I, I, I would say, yes, here in San Diego County, but not any one person. She's a repository for a collection the of She's a collection of characters yeah. put into one, exactly. P plus the national weight of it all. Um, as we've seen in the in the last few years, mm. so she just sort of became this, yeah, th this this pot <laughs> that I would throw these emotions and these um, and 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 these characteristics into. She's almost sort of the, the archetype of uh, the archetype of like uh, sort of this uncivil, angry, um, hostile behavior that we that we see from school board members. Exactly, Is that sort of the, the idea. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, go ahead. Oh, I, yeah. but I also felt it needed to be pushed a bit. I, I needed to push the envelope on it because it wasn't just enough to have um, her sitting around with her colleagues um, just sort of, you know, being angry. It had to have some – she had to have some target. So um, one of the other subjects that gets called up a lot in education is the status of DACA students, which yeah. are also known as dreamers, right? So deferred yeah. action for – I can never remember what the last two parts of that acronym in, but acronym are, but you know what I'm talking about. I do. So, um, and and I she, when I had this character, this student, I figured, ah, I have a student who's a DACA student in the story. I've got this school board president who is targeting these kinds of students because they're quote unquote illegal and they shouldn't be here and they need to be rooted out. Well, there's her target. And it's completely inappropriate and completely ridiculous for a school board member to target a student. <clears throat> but then again, in our era now, I, it wouldn't surprise me if do it you, actually happened. Do you feel like that does happen? Do, like school board members like, or uh, you know, people in school districts targeting um, undocumented students? I will say that I have not observed that yet. I maybe hope not I in don't. California, maybe, but maybe it happens yeah. in other places. Like I wonder about like, you know, more, more conservative states. It might, but I don't know of any incidents specifically other than that's just sort of what I got inspired to write for this particular scenario. I hope that that's not happening, but, um, I, but I, 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 feel like, I wouldn't root it out of the possibility. I, you know? I feel like the, the point of the film, though, is not even just like about you know school board members targeting uh, you know DACA students, but it's it's also it's more so the the vitriol, the the hostility towards these people that we see. Um, exemplified um, on school boards in school districts, we see these people vilified. We see these people 
um, sort of put on a, a negative pedestal, like, and you yeah. know, pointing the finger and saying, "Hey, they don't belong here. What are they doing? They're they're taking up our resources." That that kind of rhetoric. That's that's sort of what yes. the film was trying to call out. Oh yeah, exactly. And also just the the perception that somehow educators are in on some kind of big agenda that needs to be targeted, because of course we have this school board also targeting the teachers. So the other um, the other um, character in here that plays an important role is the is the actually the school newspaper advisor on that campus and um, how the student newspaper um, on that campus is covering um, these issues. One thing that I haven't mentioned yet is that the school board president, her, her name is Lois Green in the story, yeah. her son is a member of um, I, would, I wouldn't call it, it's not a vigilante group, but it's sort of a, they sort of see themselves as a volunteer security organization in the, in the community to keep uh, track, to make sure that people are safe and behaving well when they themselves are the ones who are the bullies, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, you've already mentioned it briefly, but just to go into more um, of an explication, like, can you talk a little bit about how the film explores this idea of otherness um, in terms of sort of the alienation of those who we perceive to be in a different cast of society from ourselves. And it, the film, like we talked about race, like the, yeah, the film definitely plays with the idea of like, you know, there, there's people who, um, like in this case, it's a, um, an Asian American um, family that yeah. gets targeted. Um, of course, we also know that, um, you know, Hispanic Americans get targeted for, for the same reason. But um, how does the film sort of play with this idea of sort of the othering of people who are different from us, sort of different from, um, you know, the, I guess, quote unquote, typical American um, and sort of the alienation or stigmatization of minorities? Because it's, it's not just race, because we also explore the idea of the film talks about, um, you know, a gay uh, LGBTQ yeah. students and sort of how they face basically the, the same kind of singling out, the same kind of targeting um, as you know, racial minorities um, in America. So, what was the uh, what was the point the film was trying to make there? So, so that there's an element to the story I don't want to spoil because there's a twist at the end that actually is where um, is where Lois gets her. Um, her, her come well, her come to Jesus moment, yeah. <laughs> for, for lack of a better term, where she sort of you know she changes her worldview as a result yeah. of something that happens in her own family, with the types of people that she targets. You know, yeah. what do you do when you have someone what do you, that you target in your own blood? family? Yeah. Exactly. So she has to make some decisions there by the end of the film. So I don't want to go too much into that, but I can talk about the sort of the mixing here of some. Of these elements, so yeah, we, we so we have an Asian American student who's targeted. We have um, we have a Latino student who's part of this security group, almost sort of like a Proud Boys type of scenario. And then we also have an LGBTQ element where um, we have students there also who are are targeted, and yeah. Lois has to come to terms with that, right? One thing I want to mention about this is that when I cast the film, one of the questions I got from actors was, how, why is there a Latino student in a, what seems to be a, a, a white uh, nationalist, what appears to be yeah. a white nationalist group? And <clears throat> my answer to that was, Everything is thrown up in the air right now. We had my my first thought was, and why I wrote the character in that case was uh, because of the Proud Boys. And who was the leader of the Proud Boys? Enrique, Enrique Tarrio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have Enrique Tarrio who is leading the Proud Boys, which seems completely incongruous. And there's increasing coverage. Uh, I've been d doing some reading um, about this. Um, 
phenomenon that's happening, yeah. this dynamic. It's an interesting dynamic. It, it is, and I wanted to represent that. So it, the film is is confusing yet clear at the same time because we're living in an era where so many lines are being blurred, and that mm. to me is another thing that's um, another challenge to all of this is how many of the lines are being blurred in terms of who believes in what, in what circumstance, and where. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting, and and for those who aren't aware, by the way, like if I mean I, I feel like most people know who the Proud Boys are, but. Um, you know, they were, they were heavily involved with the events of January 6, 2021, the, you know, the storming of the Capitol and all that. And they're, you know, generally sort of, I guess, regarded as, um, by a lot of people, as a hate group, as a white nationalist group, as an organization that, you know, targets uh, minorities, that targets, you know, people that are sort of, you know, not white Americans. Um, and so it's, it's definitely a situation where in this film, uh, you, you do explore this idea of, you know, what happens when... In a situation like that where you have, uh, you know, sort of this group of people that are singling out another group of people, what happens when someone in that group themselves, um, you know, goes, what what happens when it's your own flesh and blood? What's happening when that that person becomes one of the people that you're targeting? Um, So I think that's an interesting dynamic. But um, I also want to talk about the sort of influence of the pandemic era on the film because you said you wrote it in 2015, Definitely, right? Yeah. But then the pandemic hit as it was sh- sitting, on, sitting on the shelf. And so does this film to a certain extent seek to capture maybe some of the stresses and emotions of the, that COVID-19 era? Because I feel like from following the news, that was such a heated time for, for school boards and school districts. There was just so much vitriol, so much hostility yeah. uh, over issues of the pandemic. You know, should students wear masks? Should they be on Zoom? Should they be in class? Like, uh, how do you deal with all these all these rampant issues in addition to all already a vitriolic <laughs> school board environment based on the issues you talked about? So talk about the influence of the pandemic era on the film. I really wanted the pandemic era to sort of be a, an undercurrent to this film. It's not like a major part of it, but you can so, sort of see hints of what was going on with the pandemic at that time. Um, and this is so weird because we're still only talking about just about a year, year and a half out, and it feels yeah. like it could have been forever ago. And it um, does. so when so when I wrote when I rewrote the script during the pandemic, I had heavier pandemic elements in it. When it came time to actually make the film, I wanted I didn't want to lose that. So, and I wanted to add some symbolism there. So when we have scenes in the in the boardroom where the school board is censoring textbooks, they're voting to censor textbooks. They're voting to censor or to defund the student newspaper because they're causing trouble on campus. In the audience, you'll see the teacher and the principal wearing masks. But I'm totally inconsistent with the mask wearing in this film because the mask then becomes a symbol of um, <laughs> in a reverse way because it, during the pandemic people saw the mask as being repressive of, as some you know some form of oppression. We have to wear masks, but I'm using it in a completely different opposite way to represent what's going on in terms mm. of the silencing of students and mm. teachers. Okay, so That's in, I didn't ca- I didn't pick up on yeah, that, but now it, now I do. It was sort of a. Yeah. It was it was one way to represent the pandemic, but not in the way that people would expect it to be symbolized. Yeah, so yeah. I, I did a lot of flipping of of symbolism and context with this film yeah. a lot, um, but also. Um, the making of the film had had some challenges also related to the pandemic because we were just on the tail end of it. So yeah. um, I would say the biggest part of the pandemic that was reflected in the film itself is that. So the the, the symbolism of masks um, being turned, being, being flipped on its head. Um, and then also uh, we have the, there's a discussion with the school board members at one point before a meeting where they're asking, you know, why is this, why is this school 
newspaper program in existence. Um, it doesn't suit our interests as the school board. How do we get rid of it? And Lois says to her colleagues in the scene, um, well, during the pandemic, we should have cut it then because no one would have noticed. We weren't on campus and, you know, we could have cut mm -hmm. a program and no one would have cared and no one would have noticed by the time we came back. So we should have done it then. Then we lost our, you know, lost the opportunity. Sure. So going off of that, I want to talk a little bit about how uh, school boards and school districts have sort of, it seems like, and correct me if this is an overgeneralization, but it seems like over the past five to 10 years have become more and more in our country a battleground for social ideologies. So I'm talking about LGBTQ issues. I'm yeah. talking about, um, you know, banning of certain books. I'm talking about, um, you know, there's the whole debate over, you know, drag queens in schools and, you know, certain uh, what people are calling like um, excessively, you know, sexual content in children's books at schools or even the, the culture war with like sort of how we look at certain parts of American history, right? Because there's like, okay, how do we teach about things like slavery, things like colonization, things that, you know, don't make America look so good, but, um, you know, are a part of our history. How do we mm -hmm. incorporate that? into history, um, you have Governor Ron DeSantis, like I, I believe, and um, someone fact check me on this, but I, I believe that he recently basically um, signed a directive that rewrites Florida curriculum to where it's like, okay, yeah, we're, we're not gonna talk about like certain elements of history in our, our school books because we don't want kids growing up, quote unquote, hating America. So in a lot of ways, school, school districts throughout the country and I say it's definitely true in California, have become this battleground for social ideology with how do we look at history, how do we look at social issues like LGBTQ, um, and sort of how does the film uh, have, have to say about that? Like, how does the film sort of fit into that ongoing discussion? I think that um, ultimately, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, the, the film falls into... Into, into all of those elements by asking people to look at themselves in the mirror in terms of their behavior and how they're treating people that they view as someone not like them. My, my biggest concern and what is sort of irritating me most about the era, in the era, about the era that we're in right now is that we do a lot of, a lot of mudslinging, um, but we don't seem to be willing to look at the mirror and ask ourselves, would we, would we be willing to sling that mud if it were me? You know, um, and and so and Lois has to come to grips with that, with her son being part of this element on campus that's bullying students who are considered the other. When I I don't think I'm ruining the story too much by saying when her son ends up being one of the others himself, yeah. mm -hmm. and so. Um, I think I can reveal that much without actually ruining the drama of it when yeah, people yeah. see it in a year or six months um, or sooner, hopefully. But um, that to me, that there needs to be that kind of reflection and there's not. And I think that we, we could tone down the rhetoric if, if people actually ask themselves, would I behave this way toward me if I were seeing myself on the street? Sure. I think I think the issues themselves are worthy of talking about, but there's too much um, there's just too much targeting going on. There's not a lot of there's not a lot of debate. It's all targeting and let me shoot you down now because I'm not interested in hearing anything you have to say. Sure. Um, do you? Well, let me ask you a question. I, I know you're a journalist, and you know as as we're both journalists, it's like our job to sort of be you know, neutral, you know, sideline, objective. But I do want to know like your personal opinion about something, which is. With all this talk about, you know, banning books, um, you know, keeping certain books out of school, like, sort of what's your take on that issue as a whole? And I, I know it's not directly tied to the film, so sorry for the aside, but I'm just curious, like, as far as, like, 
um, you know, this idea that certain books are maybe not age appropriate, or certain books are teaching children the wrong things about history, or you know, negative ideas about America. I mean, uh, do you think like any book should be banned, and if so, like where do we sort of draw that line? Well, I think that, and, and I do think that the movie does play into this, you know, um, and, and one, it, the question is a great one because for me, one of my challenges being a journalist is that I, I do try to, I tend to be pretty reserved with my own opinions unless yeah. I'm really, uh-huh. you know, pushed to, to really say something because it's just, it, yeah, it's it, good it warrants it, right? Yeah. But one of the things I love about film and, and fictional writing, you know, novels and things like that is that I, it, it allows me to make those statements in a way that um, journalism, I think, in some ways doesn't allow for me to do. So, you know, this, this film is the opinion piece, really, for me on this. And um, the banning of books is a concern to me. I, I, I do think there's there's a reasonable way to look at books and judge them on whether or not they're age appropriate, but that's not what's happening right mm-hmm. now, I don't think. Okay. There, uh, to me, what I'm seeing here is an, a- is an outright attempt to, to block discussion about certain people and certain events that students do need to learn about. Yeah. And also to explore, depending on what age they're at, to explore about themselves as well as they're growing up, especially, I think, in, in high school and going yeah. into college. So the... the and, and I think a lot of people would agree with that, by the way. That, like, yeah. in, in high school is, like, a good time for kids to learn about some of these more sensitive subjects. Yeah. But maybe there's more of a debate to be had about, like, elementary, middle school, like, you know, as far as um, sort of more graphic content, I guess, well, in books. And it's like, I remember when I was in when I was in high school, I did... I was, I was in theater and I was in journalism in high school, so no surprise there necessarily. Um, but I remember, you know, we would do a show and we would have parents, we would have parents, you know, you know, haranguing the director um, of the school show saying, you know, this is inappropriate for kids. Why are you doing this production, this, that, and the other? And the, and the administration would stand by them and the show would go on and there was nothing wrong. There was nothing wrong with the show. There was no big deal. It was a great show. And, you know, that, but that seems to be not what's happening anymore. Now it seems to be, um, it's one thing to have a controversy about a show or a topic or a book or whatever it might be. It's another to start trying to classify much broader and bigger groups of people and ideas and to try to completely wipe them out from a curriculum, which I think is what we're facing right now. Mm-hmm. It's a completely different thing. Yeah. So, um, I mean, but... Do so you, I do have a problem with it. So, yeah, yeah my no, opinion I, is I, underst- I have a problem with that. Yeah, no, I understand <laughs> that you have a problem with it. What, I, what I'm curious to know is, like, do you think that there are any books that should sort of be outlawed to some extent? I mean, um, I know this is... Uh, probably a hot mic moment, but like, what about like Mein Kampf? Like, you know, books oh, like okay. that, like Got books it. like that should be banned or, or not banned? Like, how do we like, how do we draw the sure. line, you know, to some extent? Uh, I, I do not think that Mein Kampf should be banned, although it was for a time after World War II, which made perfect sense, <clears throat> just like the movie Triumph of the Will was, which was the, which was sort of the, the ultimate Nazi propaganda film that was made in the 1930s by um, Hitler's you know, signature filmmaker Lenny Riefenstahl, that film could not be seen in the United States for a long time. Well, I think for at least a good 10, 15 years. So, you know, 1950s into the 1960s. Um, But there may have, I think there were good reasons for doing that post-World War II. Would I have necessarily supported that even then? No, because I think people need to see what this is about. People need to know what it is that, um, what the foundations are of what, 
hate <laughs> around the world comes from. And Mein Kampf is part of that, to censor that book and not have it out there for anyone to read. Um, yeah, it opens it for people to read who are interested in it, and they go, ooh, I agree with this, and I'm going to be, you know, yeah, a white supremacist myself. Yeah, inflammatory, like, sort right. of... But yeah, but it does it, it does it does no one any good on the other side to not read to understand that so that they can find ways to mitigate it in some way. Sure. So well, the, I think the the yeah. best like way to deal with something like that is to put it in the open and disprove it to actually right. like refute it with dialogue, right? Because that's the way I, I that our system like, is supposed to be. Yeah, that's, that's the way that like, our design. society is supposed to operate with yeah. like, free speech, right? Is like you the way to like co- combat hate speech is I think not by like outlawing all. Sp- speech that you don't like, but it's by with using more speech to, right. to refute those ideas, right? Like, And I think that we sort of lose sight of that, and what, what you get instead is sort of echo chambers of, you know, people um, sort of buried underground just sort of agreeing with each other and, you know, yeah. kind of fostering, you know, even more hateful speech, like sort of, and, and maybe even actions under the surface. Hey, Stay Classy listeners, Steve here, and we have a new friend of the show I can't wait to share with you. None other than Legendary Group, San Diego's premier nightlife company that specializes in making your nights unforgettable. If you haven't heard already, they are the best go-to source for access to the best events in the city and handling all your VIP needs. You don't want to miss their upcoming Halloween bash, Hard Rock Halloween, Barbie Scream House on Saturday, October 28th. This massive hotel party will feature three floors, seven rooms, and 15 DJs. For the exclusive hookup on tickets, email tickets at legendarygroup.com and mention that you heard it here on the Stay Classy San Diego podcast. For more information, visit www.legendarygroup.com. And that's part of my my concern right now, too, is that everything is getting so compartmentalized, especially with the way we behave with each other on social media, that um, we just sort of – there's an unwillingness to explore alternative points of view to, yeah, prove or disprove what what is appropriate for society versus what isn't, what works better for for a society and what doesn't. And I think history, even in most recent history, shows that when you have more um, totalitarian elements and um, and nationalistic elements, because it, it's not just white nationalism, it can be nationalism in another form somewhere yeah. else, um, those systems tend to burn out pretty quickly and they don't seem to do society a lot of a lot of good yeah. you know they they burn out quickly and people suffer well sorry to interrupt but i just yeah. wanted to explore that a little more so um the film talks a lot about i want to get back to the film but yeah, I, I mean, like the film <laughs> talks a little bit about the or it talks a lot about the, just the level of anger that we see in civil dialogue at specifically the school board level at the community level um, I mean, you've been around longer than me. Like, can you can you observably say that, like, in the time that you've been a journalist and the time that you've been producing films and the time that you've lived, that the level of sort of anger in, in school boards, not just school boards, but the level of political polarization, the way that people engage with each other in dialogue has evolved. And and not just, like, talking or about, devolved. you know, <laughs> devolved. And not just talking about, you know, it's whose fault it is, like, you know, Trump or whoever, like, whoever people cast the blame at, but talking about, like, how you've seen that evolve in the past, say, like, 10 to 15 years. I think it's, it's really, um, it, it, the extremes have gotten just really a lot more extreme. It's really worrying to me. And and I'm noticing, I, I'm one of those who likes to sort of see things a bit more broadly, and I don't think that it's very easy to label, con- yeah. it, it's very easy to label 
conservatives with this, frankly, but I'm sorry. I think that liberals are perfectly capable of this too. I've been at the receiving end of both. Yeah. My, my outlook as a journalist is if you're angering both sides, you're probably you're doing, doing your right. job really, you're yeah. doing your job great. Well, we've been and, there and we'll talk about that later yeah, with our uh, situation yeah, last year. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> in, in, in politics and yeah. in our communities, yes. Um, but, you know, so it, it's coming from both sides increasingly now. And I, I think it's hard to say, well, it's just one side that's behaving this way. No, maybe one's in reaction to another, but that's part of the evolution of this. Mm -hmm. If one side needs to react to another because the, um, the vitriol is so strong, then both become vitriolic and now we're getting nothing done because we're doing nothing but shouting at each other. And, and that's we see that in the school right board now. meetings. People literally, oh, like all the viral videos of people literally shouting in school board meetings, people railing at the school board, parents uh, going at each other's throats. Yeah. Like that seems... That seems new, or that seems it is. like a, a more recent development. And and I and I've covered, I've covered education as well as being an educator. I've, I've covered education as a journalist in in our communities in North County, and I don't remember the 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 tension and the um, I don't know just the the it's a tension. I don't remember this kind of tension and this kind of hostility. It did not used to be the case. Yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember public comments. Um, ever being anything like yeah. what we see today. City council meetings too, by the and way. City council meetings as well. And and there would be, most of the time, what normal used to be was that there would be very few public commenters at a meeting unless the issue warranted it and if people were really passionate about it. Now, um, you have groups that are just calling in to take up time and to spout hate um, or to spout whatever it is that's disruptive because the point is to disrupt. It's not to actually foster... Um, any um, discussion about issues that are actually a concern. It's simply to disrupt. I don't yeah. think there's any purposes to it other than that at this point in a lot of respects. How do you think that, and I'm not asking you to explain the, the, you know, the entire history of uh, civil dialogue in America here, but how, how do you think that sort of um, de devolution, is that a word? Yeah. Uh, de yeah. Devolution mm -hmm. uh, sort totally. of starts. Like how, how does that really, like what's the origin of that? Because I mean, you look at, uh, is it sort of, does it go back to sort of like maybe a breakdown in um, commonly shared values? Is it something else? Like sort of where does that start and like how, how do we push against that? I think part of it might, a part of it might be a breakdown in a common sense of, of direction yeah. um, of, of what the country or the community is about. Um, but I think I, I, I tend to be a, a pretty heavy critic of, of the Internet as much as I use it like anybody else for yeah. it, the incredible tool that it is. But I will never forget when I was a college student myself at Cal State San Marcos, we, they were an early adopter of, of anything having to do with the Internet and digital communication. And we're talking now the late 19, mid-1990s. Mm -hmm. So um, I remember we were already having discussion boards online and the vitriol was was horrible. It was called flaming at that time. And I think it probably, it might still be in some circles, but when you would get into a flame war on a discussion board, it's very much like what we see today. Yeah. And only it was in these little limited spaces. But I was the editor of the student paper at that time on that campus. And I was seeing this happen and I'm going, oh boy, this is, this is not yeah. a good... This, this is not a good well, it's development. Like people are it's saying things to each other that they there. would never say in person, right? Exactly. That's, that's sort of how the internet brings out the worst in us, right? Is yes. Because there's, there's this ability to just sort of 
you don't see someone. You don't see them face to face. You don't even see if them, their name is put to it. Being. Even if their um, name is put to it, it doesn't matter. They think they're anonymous yeah. because there's this barrier of, uh, of of bits and bytes and you know transmission, right? But but they're. Whether it's anonymous or they put their name to it, they don't seem to care. It's the there's something about there's something about the medium that fosters this, and yeah. it, it certainly could use more. And I think it's also fueled by it. the misinformation we see on the internet, right? Which is like now, that yeah, you have, more than ever. You have the ability now for people to just simply um, a lot of people you know get their news from Instagram, they get their news from Twitter, you know they. X, sorry, yeah. Elon. Uh, but like, essentially, it's it's a situation now where you know anybody can post anything they want, and somebody out there will believe it. And I feel like that misinformation adds fuel to the fire of the the anonymity, the name calling, and that seems to carry over, unfortunately, into um, the way people engage in school board meetings, as the film talks about. And oh, totally. And yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there's there's a good there's a scene um, where the. Lois, the school board president, and um, and Kate, the teacher, are having an argument about what's going on with the with the student that she's ta- that she's targeting, and Lois talks about how how her you know family um, is immigrants and they came across a boat from what she calls the Red Curtain, and um, curtain. the teacher right corrects her saying it's the Iron Curtain. Me, that's me sort of dropping the hint in there that you may think you know what you're talking about, but you actually don't. Um, so, you know, choose your words and choose your research carefully. One of the, sure. th- one of the things that the teacher says at the end of that conversation is, you know, find out more about who it is you're going to destroy. Get to know mm. them before you actually, you know, yeah. pull the symbolic trigger on them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, like, this film uh, covers a lot of different themes. But one thing that I sort of see in the film is, you know, the main character... What's her name again? Lois. Lois. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, I've seen the film, I swear. No. Uh, but I, 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 I forget, too, sometimes. I'm like, what's wrong uh, with me? So the, Lois, like, again, without spoiling the film, she kind of has this come-to-Jesus moment. She comes mm-hmm. around. She sort of sees their other ways by the end. Um, and there's sort of a sense, uh, a slight sense of redemption at the end for, for Lois um, in terms of the way she comes around. And this film sort of explores these ideas of, uh, you know, sort of forgiveness, of revenge, of you know, people taking uh, the, the students again without spoiling it, taking revenge on each other for yeah. perceived wrongdoing, yep. um, and even that carries over into how the adults engage with each other. Um, so, what do you feel like this film has to say about term about these themes of forgiveness and revenge, and just sort of uh, at a very human level? How we how we deal with each other, how we engage with each other. You, you know, um, <clears throat> so I co I co produced this with two um, two friends and colleagues of mine from from film work we've done before. I have to mention their names, Jenny Olson Six and Rihanna Basor. So Rihanna and Jenny and I have been talking about these themes, and Jenny said something to me that I'm try- if I if I can get the words right that play right to this that the story is not it's not so much a redemption story. For Lois, because she's still the person that she is at the end, although her perceptions have changed. So, it's not so much it's not so much a redemption story as it is um, as a as a discovery story, a journey of discovery where someone learns and grows and becomes a better person. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you know she's 
a changed being or something like that. I think the human condition is more com complex than that. And so it's not so much a story of redemption. It's a story of realization and growth. Mm. And um, her fiery personality is now used, if you, if you recall in the film, that, you know, once she realizes that the wrong she's done, she's using that same fiery energy to fix the wrongs that she's created. Yeah. So, um it's it, yeah, it's it's a story of of a journey and and learning and coming to realize, but not necessarily redemption in terms of you know being a whole new being out of out of sure. it. Yeah. Well, I hope this question, this next question, isn't a distraction, but I, I do want to play with what you just said, which is, uh, you know, you mentioned that you know there's some um, realization, some growth, but at the end of the day, you know, she's still the person she is. Um, in your opinion, uh, not to be overly philosophical, but do you do you actually believe that a human being with as complicated as we are, as complex as our condition is, the way our minds work, um, that a human being can can really change who they are um, on, on that level? Or do you believe that people can sort of alter the exterior, that we can sort of modify ourselves, but that we sort of are who we are? Like, and sort of tie that, tying that into Lois's character. I would say I'm much more hopeful than the film would would show. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So your, your opinion, personal opinion it. might be slightly different from like the way oh, her character comes yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I think that, um, no, I do believe that people can change and that they can, and they can see their wrongs and actually be changed people based on the experiences that they go through. So, and, and so I do believe that there can be, um, there is that. Uh, so if, is it, is it redemption in a case like that? Yeah, I do think people can redeem themselves. I, I really do. I don't think the film goes that far with her. Mm. Um, but I, I have to say, originally when I wrote it, my intention was that that would be the case. But after feedback from Jenny and Rihanna and and others, the sense that they had was that, you know, not quite. <laughs> it's a little bit open-ended maybe. Um, but she certainly is has a much more open mind. And sure. she's opened her, her life and her, her eyes, you know, to realizing that people are more alike than, than, than not. Yeah. And that includes people in her own family, you know. There's, um, I think another character that doesn't that we haven't talked about that factors into this to a lesser extent is the father figure who's one of the heads of this, um, you know, this patrol group that we have in the in the film called Fourth Freedom, and, and, and they're sort of the anti like immigrant like group that's sort of trying to round them up. And yeah, and it, but it, but it's cloaked in this, you know, yeah. we're here to we're here to help the help the police and you know like all schools to stay safe. BS, yeah, right. So um, you know he. When Lois sees the dynamic that happens between her son and her husband as a result of, you know, the realizations that come through that are revealed in the story, that also is part of her her um, her change in perception because um, she's been targeting other people, her other children rather. She she targets other children, but as soon as she sees her child being targeted in her own home by her own husband, the father of her child, that changes the picture entirely for her. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm curious and maybe the answer is just no, but um that particular plot twist um with the family dynamic mm -hmm. discovering that, you know, their child is actually one of these groups that they sort of despise like is was that maybe perhaps partially inspired by um, a situation in your own life, maybe somebody you knew, like, uh, or something you heard about, like, or was that sort of just sort of the, the generic, uh, um, you know, family finding out about that kind of moment? And I, I'm trying not to yeah. spoil the exact no, no, I know, nature exactly. of this plot point. And, and we're, do, we're, we're doing all right we're dancing on that so around far. It, yeah, yeah um, we're dancing around it enough. Hope maybe we'll raise more interest <laughs> to actually yeah. reveal what that is. Yeah, what, what is the kid? <clears throat> what happened to him? Yeah, yeah, watch the film, find out. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I... <sighs> 
it's more generic. It really is okay. more generic. I, because when, when you have, um, you, I've, I've got this white American family and then I've got, you know, this, this multiracial, multi-ethnic, um, diverse camp, you know, high school campus. And I thought, well, how can I have her come to this moment of realization? It can't be with them because that's not going to change that situation with the, with the, with the Korean American student that she targets originally. So it has to be someone in her own home. Well, um, there's no there's no sense of ethnic diversity in that particular household because they are who they are. Mm. So I had to find some reveal that would allow that realization to take place um, that would make sense. Sure. But also at the same time be just as relevant as anything else. And mm. so that particular plot twist, I tried to factor that in into it sure. so which actually works really well because the topics of um the the, the other topics that we go beyond just race and race and ethnicity are um are a big part of what we're dealing with today in our discourse yeah. too right so if, if we're uh confusing our viewers just Watch the film. Just watch yeah, the film. Exactly. You'll understand I what think, we're talking I, about. I think the hints um, are there. The hints are I there. Just, the hints are there. We're, the hint, we're dancing yeah. around it. Um, <laughs> I, before we go today, though, I, I wanted to touch on your other role. You're a filmmaker, but you're also mm -hmm. the owner and publisher, correct, of the North Coast Current, yes. um, which is a digital newspaper in North County, San Diego. And I wanted to ask you, um, journalist to journalist, what it's sort of been like since you started The Current and... Maybe some of the challenges, and we can talk about the positives too, but sort of the challenges that yeah. you've faced um, during that time period. So the, the Current originally was created in 2002. I, um, I, it was a, a project that ran out of money pretty quickly, so it sort of sat on the sideline until um, what happened with the North County Times in 2012. So ten, we fast forward to yeah. 10 years later, 2012. I relaunched it as an online-only site where it's stayed ever since. Um, and it's, it, it was, I, create, I recreated it to fill a void that I was concerned about with the North County Times being closed and sold to the Union Tribune and folded in there. Um, and I would say the, the biggest challenge has been, first of all, of course, to find funding. The, mm. the traditional advertising model just does not work anymore, I don't think, in a lot of respects. And I know that community papers and bigger dailies all are having that same issue. Yeah. Even online now, because Google has, in my personal opinion, a stranglehold on options for online advertising. And so... Oh, um, big man on the block, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, 10 cents, you know, a day for advertising is just not going to cut it. So I haven't found a solution yet that can really... I think just going out there and asking for a handout on the on for readers, that can work for a um, a nonprofit. At some level, but well, if I think for nonprofit news organizations, donors are are super cru crucial, and I think that the nonprofit model for news is great in that regard. But I felt as as a as a for profit for yeah. myself yeah. as a company, I felt yeah, uncomfortable. Business. <laughs> yeah, I I've, yeah. I felt uncomfortable asking for quote unquote donations mm. when I'm not a nonprofit. I don't feel right doing that. So I'm trying to find a model that allows me to ask for or to seek community support in that way uh, while providing something in return that's not just more stories online. Sure. That's just – so that's sort of the challenge yeah. of, of what I'm trying to sort out right now. Yeah. Well, 
I mean, I think it's it's no secret, obviously, that print newspapers across the country are not doing well. Um, I mean, I, I personally know of a whole host of newspapers up and down California that have closed in the last like ten years or, or so, and I'm sure you know a lot more than yeah. me. Um, and uh, you know, from working at several newspapers, I know the dynamics behind the scenes. I know how challenging it is, like the thin profit margins, how, how much some of these papers are struggling, um, and it, it's not really any secret to some extent why, right? You know, people are getting their news online. People are no longer engaging with a print newspaper. People are, you know, not paying as much attention to, to local news um, as, as they used to, perhaps. Like, people aren't engaging at that level in the way that they used to because the nature of online news, right? Because things are moving online, yeah. it's sort of leaving newspapers in the dust. But beyond, if we take out the internet, if we take out the online stuff, like, sort of, what do you think is, what do you think else is going on with um, the struggle of the, the newspaper industry right now? And... Why is why is that a problem? Like for, for people who are like, so what? Like, but why is that a problem that we are losing some of these local newspapers? Well, without having without having sources of information, and let me say multiple sources of information, people are not may, able to make good educated decisions for themselves, and that might be part of the reason we're seeing what we're seeing today, just in our society mm-hmm. in general. That. Um, it used to be that news outlets were institutions in a community, and they would be trusted institutions because there were uh, there. First of all, there was a variety of them, and and, and second of all, because they had a sense of presence in the community that that websites don't have. I mean, I. I and I'm just seeing that myself. I think that the the issues of online journalism versus print news. Uh, is all still rolled into that. I don't think you can have one part of that conversation without the other um, in in general. But um, I think that without having multiple ways of getting information, um, you are just not able to make as good decisions. That's just, yeah. that would be my, well, I, I'm I not guess, saying it as no, well, no, frankly, you, as, no, I, as I could have. You're making the point, and just to add on to that, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, as a journalist, obviously, I'm going to make the case for newspapers right now. Like, basically, like, when you lose local newspapers, what you're really doing is you're disengaging people from their community. They're yes. disengaging people from what's going on in their community. Uh, people don't know what, what's happening at, at the, you know, city hall. People don't know what's going on in local government. And when that happens, I feel like people become very sort of disen- disengaged from just what yeah what's happening in their community yeah. they become disengaged from local issues and those local issues matter those local issues do matter you know like what what schools get built you know um you know what goes on in our schools you know what, what roads get built um you know local housing projects like, we're, like we've covered in Encinitas and Carlsbad and these other yeah. north county cities like these are all issues that affect your day-to-day life and you feel like you don't have any connection to what's going on there and the newspapers you know traditionally were acting as sort of this arbiter of you know, the sort of the political side of things to, to the people, this, this sort of perfect medium. And we're sort of losing that. And I think what you're getting is more people getting their news from the internet, more people getting their news from, from Twitter, from Instagram, from memes, from, from Facebook, um, you know, believing rumors that they see, believing disinformation. And that leads to chaos, right? Like you see exactly. people who are in exactly. these little echo chambers where they're, it's like, okay, where do you uh, get your news? It's like, oh, well, I get my news online. It's like, okay, where do you get it? It's like, oh, I get my news from, uh, I don't know, Something what's no like one's a, ever heard of, you, you know, know, like the Daily be, Stormer or like yeah, some like you know extreme like newspaper that you know yeah. is run by a bunch of idiots. Like you, you get these people who just they have no, um, there's no way to verify what they're saying. There's no way to actually yeah. fact check it. There's nothing like that that goes on, and that's the problem with people getting their news. Um, with, that's the problem with losing these local and newspapers. They're, and they're run by people who are not who are not trained in. In, Basic the, in, the, in the processes yeah. of doing the work well, so um, 
there are a lot of people who call themselves journalists now simply because they have a website, not because they actually know what they're doing. You know, it's sort of like saying I'm a surgeon just because I slice someone's, you know, arm yeah. with an exacto knife to pull out a to pull out a, a a splitter. You know, that's that that's one of the issues I have with all of that. The thing also about newspapers, the way the the way the model up until now was, is that and I think this goes for radio and television as well, is that you, they, had, they had presences in communities because they were seen um, and they were heard and they were watched. You had, um, you had the big newspaper office in downtown, you know, they'd have the big sign up on there, didn't, whether it was a small town or a big city, you knew where they were, they had the presence there, right? You would see the newspapers at coffee shops, supermarkets, they were visible everywhere. The problem with websites is the realization I had a few years ago is how do you scream in a room full of screamers? Because you can have the North Coast Current online. You can have the Encinitas Advocate, the Coast News. You can have the Escondido, the new Escondido Times mm -hmm. Advocate. Um, Voice of San Diego. Yeah. Bay Press yeah. or whatever it might be. Exactly. And unless you know what it is you're looking for, you're never going to see them. Because no. you have to know what you're looking for online to find them in the first place. And that's only if they the show garbage. Right. And that's yeah. only if they show up in the searches and you've actually in some cases paid for the privilege to show up towards the top. So we didn't have to try to learn how to scream in a room full of screamers. How do you get your voice heard when everyone else's voice, legitimate or not, is exactly at the same level yours is? And that's yeah. the that's the biggest issue I have right now. We should now. give the biggest mic to the well, people. Well, one of the biggest just, issues. But. I mean, I think the point is <laughs> we, shouldn't, many. we shouldn't be giving the mic to the people who, who can just pay for it. We should be giving it to the people who actually are fact-checking, people who are using reliable sources, people who are actually doing investigative journalism, people who are actually going in and doing the work. Um, journalism's a hard job. And I know there's oh, yeah. a lot of talk about like, oh, like, you know, Elon's always like, Elon Musk is always like, oh, you know, um, newspapers are just like, you know, basically rewriting what was already on Twitter. That's not the case. Newspapers actually, like good quality newspapers, the ones I've worked for, actually do independent fact checking. They actually use reliable sources. Um, they use these multiple sources. They actually, you know, do the, we, we do hour long interviews with people sometimes, yeah. sometimes longer. It's a collection of information over a sustained period of time um, that is then run through a gauntlet of editors, of fact checkers, of sources, and then that's the finished product. Um, anybody can snap a, a video on 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 Twitter, Photoshop something right. in, and, and people unfortunately will believe that. But it's it's not true to say that what you see on the internet is the same thing as what you read in the newspaper the following day. No, and and, and the the daunting task for us is to find ways um, in this environment to make sure that 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 work is explained and shared in a way that um, people from multiple points of view are willing to accept. Um, I don't think we're there right now, and maybe it's. I don't think it's because that. I don't. I don't think it's because we're um, that we're not doing our jobs. Although there is a chilling effect going on just because of people's behavior, and we being targeted as journalists as just as much as educators and um, yeah. and and well and 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 elected officials as well. You know, there's a chilling effect going on, so we have to fight that too. You know, I'm I'm sort of right now. I've become less of an answer person and more of a just a you know. Here's our problem. Maybe we can find some hope in all of this, but I don't, I don't know what the answers are quite yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm still exploring them myself. I'm with you there. Uh, you know. um, since we only have a few minutes, I just yeah. wanted to circle back one more time and ask, like, you know, 
Um, Red-Blooded, obviously, tremendous film, but um, do you have any other projects at all that you sort of want to promote while you're on here? Anything else that you're working on? Or are we, are we not quite there yet? Um, or, yeah, not where are you Not quite there yet. I actually, over the, I, so I finished editing the film in um, July, got the sign-off from, from Jenny and Rihanna. We're all happy with it. It's, it's good to start shipping to festivals. And since that happened, I'm sort of now um, in a, I, I've, I've got, I'm a blank slate. I've been waiting for, you know, do I pull another script off the shelf, which I've got a few, or do I just do something fresh now? And so I'm sort of in a, in a in a blank brain yeah. yeah in a blank brain mode right now sure um, what festivals by the way did you submit the film to Red so the, so the film is right now I'm waiting right now we're in a holding pattern waiting for word back on whether the festivals will accept um, the film for screening so among the ones that have been it's been submitted to for consideration are the Borrego Springs Film Festival um, Oceanside uh, there's one called. Uh, let's see. Um, I do have it uh, submitted to Slam Dance, which is in um, Utah, uh, among others. I don't want to mention too many of them because I don't want to give an indication I'm trying to like sway sure. festivals yeah. to accept it. Sure. So I'm just running them off because those are the ones I've entered. There's no guarantee that we'll get screened, but I, you know, knock on knock on wood, we will. Hey, well, if I have anything to say about it, it's going to get screened. And Thank it's you. Win. Well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really hope I'm really happy that it's winning awards already, though, because yeah. some of the online That's festivals yeah. um, at this point. It, on, on, if you go to the IMDb page on the film, for the film, it's got 30 awards to its name already from, from three online festivals alone. So those, are the ones, those, those aren't ones where you sit down and get to watch the movie, but at least judges are finding it um, a, a, a good piece of work. So Amazing. I consider myself lucky. And, yeah, and blessed that it worked and, out because I wasn't. And you're not just sure lucky; you're, you're talented. You made this happen. <laughs> you know, you produced, you directed. <laughs> like you, you made this happen. You pushed this forward. So congratulations Thank again. You. And then one more last thing is yeah. how and when can people access the film? Okay, so the way this works is that um, some festivals prefer having a, a level of exclusivity. So they don't like um, accepting films that are already being seen out in, in, in public. So I have to sort of try to balance between that. So I'm waiting right now for it to at least show up in a few festivals first before I release it to actually show and, and to actually have people, you know, pay to show it, to see it on, you know, on um, streaming services and to find a distributor until after it's gone to at least a few festivals. That means that probably it won't be publicly available until until maybe March, April, May, depending on how the okay. festival acceptances go first. Well, and not all filmmakers do it that way. I'm just choosing to do it that way because I don't want to sacrifice potential uh, festivals that I would like a chance to be screened at. Awesome, yeah. yeah. Well, Roman, thanks so much for coming on today. You know, I know we've worked together on articles before, and um, hopefully, we'll again. But and now um, on the other side of it, this yeah. Time now we're on the other me. side of this, and <laughs> like I, I had no idea when I first met you. I mean, I knew you were at the North Coast Current. I had no idea about this whole other passion project of yours, this whole other side of you, where you're writing all these amazing scripts, where you're winning awards, when um, you know you're vying for. Um, all these different festivals. And so I just wanted to congratulate you again on the Thank film. You. Um, again, it's red-blooded. It's going to be available in probably early spring 2024. Yeah, good six months, eight yeah, months. MercuryCinema.com. MercuryCinema.com to look at that and other projects. Yes, all right. Thanks so much for coming on, Roman. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Right, yep, that's a wrap. Thanks. This has been another recorded episode of Stay Classy San Diego with your host, Steve Wire. Thanks again to our sponsor, Max Lux Media and MaxLuxMedia.com. Check us out at StayClassyPod.com com or any of our social media outlets. We're on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and everywhere else you get your podcast content.
please like and subscribe to our channel. It really helps us continue bringing you important content that you're not going to see anywhere else. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning into the show. See you next time. Stay classy, San Diego.